New Year, and uh, welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton. This is the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. My name is Mark Vandermoss. It is my pleasure to be your host here on the podcast, and uh, we are a bit belated in wishing you a Happy New Year. That is true. Uh, we're coming up on the end of January here. But in our defense, we've had a lot of work going on, uh, and if you've been to Acton.org, our uh, institution website, uh, you've seen the, the fruits of that labor just in the last week or so. We've launched a brand new website uh, at Acton.org, a beautiful new design, uh, very clean, uh, very easy to navigate, we think, and uh, we, we hope that you'll find it a lot easier to find whatever information you're looking for from us. We've got a lot of resources available to you on Acton.org. And uh, we've tried our best to make them as available and as easily accessible as possible. So if you've got friends, uh, colleagues, anyone in your life that uh, you think would be interested in the work of the Acton Institute, in uh, our conferences, and the ideas that we promote, uh, please send them the link, acton.org. And uh, don't forget to send the link to the Acton Power blog as well at blog.acton.org. That is redesigned as well, looking very nice. And uh, ready to go for another year of commentary and uh, news on Acton.org. With that said, let's turn to our podcast for today. We've got a good one lined up for you. Ovik Roy is with us. He is opinion editor at Forbes magazine. He writes extensively on topics relating to healthcare and healthcare reform. Uh, he's also the president uh, and founder of a new think tank called the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. They do research on expanding economic opportunity to those who least have it, which is a fantastic mission and uh, one that's well worth your support. You can check them out online at freeop.org. That's F-R-E-O-P-P.org. Uh, be sure to check that out. And he was uh, with us here at the Acton Institute, actually, as part of our Acton Lecture Series, speaking on the topic of uh, the end of cultural conservatism as we know it. Now, that lecture has already been posted uh, to our videos page and to the Acton Power blog on Acton.org. Uh, and I really encourage you to check it out. It's a very good talk. We've had a number of really good talks uh, of late as part of our lecture series uh, talking about the current populist moment that we're having in the United States and, uh, and, and trying to uh, find a way for the conservative movement to move forward uh, in a way that uh, is constructive and uh, that has uh, prospects for success in the long term. Uh, ben Dominic was here uh, talking about populism uh, last year, and this year we're, we're off to a great start with a Vic Roy talking about uh, cultural conservatism, and I, I'd encourage you to check that out. But because uh, Ovik has such a uh, expertise in healthcare too, I thought it was a great opportunity here on the podcast to pick his brain a little bit about uh, about the healthcare issue, because of course, as Donald Trump has assumed office. Uh, the Republicans are now in control, not only of Congress, but also the presidency. And, of course, uh, they have been talking for years since the passage of Obamacare about repealing and replacing that legislation or overturning it in some way. Um, but now the rubber hits the road. The Republicans actually have the opportunity to do this. And uh, the question is, how do you go forward from this point if you're looking to reform the United States healthcare system in a way that makes sense economically and in a way that provides the most coverage for the most people. Uh, Vic Roy has a plan that he has come up with at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Check him out uh, again at freeop.org. Right on the front page, uh, they have a, a post uh, called Understanding Free Ops Obamacare Replacement in 10 Minutes or Less. That's a good place to start if you're looking for a plan to uh, sensibly replace Obamacare in a way that actually helps the United States healthcare system to become 
uh, more rational and and <laughs> more affordable uh, while still covering virtually everybody. But uh, we want to talk to Avic about that. And so without further ado, let's get to my interview with Avic Roy here on Radio Free Acton. I am uh, pleased to be joined today on Radio Free Acton uh, by Ovik Roy, who uh, you may know from any number of different uh, places. He's uh, been with the Manhattan Institute. He's a columnist and opinion editor for Forbes. Uh, he uh, has made uh, appearances on any number of television networks, MSNBC, Fox News, and so forth, uh, talking about healthcare uh, and uh, healthcare-related issues. And he is also the founder of a brand new think tank. Uh, and uh, first of all, uh, Ovik, welcome so much to uh, thank you so much for being here at Acton today. Hey, it's my pleasure, Mark. How are you? I'm doing well. And uh, you gave a fantastic talk today uh, here at uh, the, our Mark Murray Auditorium uh, as part of the, the 2017 Acton Lecture Series on the end of cultural conservatism as we know it. Fantastic talk. And we're going to post that on the Acton Power blog uh, just as soon as we're able. Uh, and I encourage everyone to, uh, to uh, give it a watch because it's important to... I think it's a, an, an important talk to uh, to consider for this new year and this new era of American politics that we're entering. And and I guess the I should probably ask you right off the bat, as we are speaking, uh, it is the week of the inauguration of Donald Trump, which I somehow still can't quite wrap my head around that I had to have to say that Donald Trump, the president elect of the United States. What are what are your general thoughts as we enter on to the uh, Trump administration? I have to ask. Well, you know, I'm one of those people who anytime there's a new president, I'm always hoping for the best. You know, when when Obama in 2008 said that he was going to reform entitlements, I hoped he was right. I even told my girlfriend at the time that if he succeeded, I might even vote for him in 2012. Well, obviously, uh, it went in a different direction. And, uh, you know, I'm glad I uh, I didn't vote for him in the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And again, I think everybody uh, hopes for the best. It's It's a pretty unsettled time in American politics. And uh, you you've written and and uh, and uh, talked a lot about healthcare issues. You're you're obviously uh, very educated in medical issues, having gone to Yale uh, Medical School. Uh, so tell me, first of all, how did you uh, go to med medical school and then end up writing about medical issues for Forbes and the like? Well, I basically failed at a bunch of different careers. Uh, you know, so I was I was actually trying to be a professional scientist uh, when I was in college, and then I decided I was too dumb to be a professional scientist. But I happened to be in medical school when I made that decision, so at least I could be a doctor. And then, uh, you know, I was in the, uh, medical school in the '90s, and I was really excited about. Um, uh, about the internet, about biotechnology, and I felt like, well, I could spend my entire life being a doctor, and that's great. But, but there's this incredible revolution going on in, in biology. I want to, uh, you know, with genetics and DNA sequencing and all this kind of stuff. I want to participate in that. And then out of nowhere, I got recruited by a then unknown investment firm called Bain Capital to help them invest. I, I've in, heard uh, of that somewhere yeah. before. So, you know, they were, this was in like 2000, 2001, the human genome project had just been completed and all these genomics companies were doing really well in the stock market and nobody really understood what these genomics companies were doing. So they were like, well, why don't we hire someone with a scientific background to help us understand how to invest in these companies? So they, they hired me and that led to a 12 year career as an investor in biotech companies, so and healthcare companies more broadly, health insurers, hospitals, all the rest, and so I was, you know, kind of minding my own business, doing that kind of work. When uh, in two thousand nine, 
the Democrats started to put uh, what we now think of as Obamacare together in Congress. And um, I wasn't reading anything that I agreed with. You know, on the on the left, uh, there were all these people like uh, Ezra Klein, then at the Washington Post, and Jonathan Cohn, who was then at the New Republic, who were saying this is all going to be great. All the experts say Obamacare is going to work swimmingly. And on the right, there was nobody really arguing with them. The, the conservative critiques in places like National Review and the Wall Street Journal were much more about, much more ideological. You know, Obamacare is bad because it's big government. Obamacare is bad because it's unconstitutional. Obamacare is bad because it's an increased welfare, the welfare state. But there weren't really many people at all making the argument about what Obamacare would actually do to your health insurance and the quality of your health care. The left was making arguments that were outcomes-based. They weren't making ideological arguments. They were saying, vote for Obamacare or support Obamacare because it's going to make your health care less expensive, more affordable, better. Conservatives were saying, vote against Obamacare because it's big government. You know, They weren't making an argument about how does it actually affect average people. And that matters because at the end of the day, you, okay, you know, people who like us who care about big government, we're going to be mad about Obamacare. But to the average voter who is not as ideological – uh, they're going to care more about those, you know, pocketbook type arguments, and we weren't making those pocketbook arguments at the time. So I started a blog. I bought my name on the internet, ovicroy.org, and that's a good practice actually to do that. Yeah, yes. yeah, that was, uh, you know, I, I don't regret doing it, especially now. Uh, and then uh, uh, I started just kind of venting into the ether about uh, about what I didn't like about Obamacare. Next thing you know, uh, I happen to know Rich Lowry uh, socially in New York, the editor of National Review, and and he. Uh, said, hey, uh, I hear you're writing about healthcare. You want to write for us? So next thing you know, I was blogging for National Review. And then it turned out that a guy I knew from college was the healthcare editor at Forbes. And he was like, hey, uh, I like your stuff in National Review. You want to write for Forbes? And then, uh, I mean, uh, next thing you know, I had a blog at Forbes. And next thing you know, my blog at Forbes uh, did really well. And the Manhattan suit came calling and said, uh, you want to be a senior fellow at our think tank? And then the Romney campaign called and said, hey, uh, uh, remember you from Bain Capital. You want to help us design our health reform plan? I'm like, sure. So... Next thing I knew, you knew, I was a healthcare policy expert. That is a, a, a disappointing record of failure. I'll tell you what, <laughs> I, I, I feel for you. But uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about healthcare because it's, it's coming up again, obviously, with the transition to the Trump administration. A lot of promises to get rid of Obamacare, repeal it, replace it. Uh, that's, that's, those promises have been made for years, but now the, the Republicans control Congress. There's a Republican at least nominal Republican president. And so in theory, there could be some action here. So let's, let's just set up a, uh, a, little, a little bit for our listeners of, of an understanding of how, first of all, how we got into the situation where Obamacare became necessary. The United States has always had sort of a unique uh, healthcare financing system in the industrialized world. Is that uh, rather, uh, that's, yeah, that's an accurate absolutely. statement. And, and, and it's always been in, uh, at least since World War II, if I'm thinking correctly, it's been employer uh, and benefit associated, correct? Yeah. So basically what happened was uh, when uh, all the boys in World War II went off to fight, fight in the war, the Roosevelt administration was worried that because there were few uh, fewer men of working age, and this was at a time when women didn't really work, there are fewer men of working age in the country domestically that uh, companies uh, would compete so hard to retain those workers or hire them away that wages would go up a lot. Now, you might think, okay, that's great. Wages will go up a lot. But the Roosevelt administration was worried that if wages really skyrocket, 
then that's going to be passed down to consumers in the form of really high prices for goods and services. So when you go to get your haircut, your haircut will cost twice as much. When you go to buy groceries or go to McDonald's, it'll all cost more because they're going to have to pay their laborers that much more. So in response to this concern, the Roosevelt administration instituted a system of wage controls. They literally had a schedule, a, a piece of paper, in which if you were a barber, this is how, you ma- how much you made. If you worked in a factory, you were allowed to be paid this much, and just on, on down the line. And then if, after the war was over, they got rid of that. Uh, but what, the thing that was interesting was that companies realized there was a loophole. They, you know, you couldn't pay your factory worker more than, you know, say $10 an hour or something like that, inflation adjusted. But what you could do is you could pay them more, you could sweeten the pot by offering health insurance because that was exempted from the wage controls. Next thing you know, after the war is over, the Eisenhower administration says, you know what, we're going to make those health insurance benefits excluded from taxation, which means that if your company, if your uh, employer, gives you a dollar more in salary, you're paying taxes on that. Federal, state, local income tax, and then Medicare and Social Security taxes, uh, eventually Medicare uh, taxes. But uh, if you uh, if you give that worker a dollar in health care, health insurance benefits, they don't pay any taxes on that. So if, if you add up all those taxes and say it's 50% of your paycheck, and if you give that person a dollar in terms of health insurance, you're actually paying them twice as much for the same dollar. Because if you give them a dollar, they're keeping 50 cents of it. But if you give them a dollar in health insurance, they get a dollar of health insurance. And that led us to the system we have today, where if you think about auto insurance, right, why do we buy auto insurance? We buy it so that if your car gets totaled or your car gets stolen, that catastrophically large financial bill is taken care of. Um, With health insurance, it doesn't work the same way. Health insurance pays for every little thing that we do in the healthcare system because for 70 years, we've given employers the incentive to cover more and more things through health care that you wouldn't normally cover in any other form of insurance that we know of. And so you've got this, uh, this, this system that puts in place uh, an, an example, I, I guess you could call it a basic economic principle. That is, if something is free, people will not care for it as much. Uh, if something appears to be free, appears to be free, absolutely is not, is not yeah. free. Right. But if you if your doctor office uh, visits are paid for, if your medicines are paid for, uh, not only do you not have as the consumer, you don't have as much of a an incentive to conserve that resource or use it as wisely as possible. But the providers of those services also they're shielded from the the market pressures that would come from consumers saying, "Oh, that costs too much. I'm not going to do that." Yeah, it's it's like when you uh, go to an open bar at an in-laws wedding, where you know if somebody else is paying the bill or you think someone else is paying the bill, you're going to get the nicest thing they have at the bar. You know, or maybe you, you go out to dinner with eight of your friends and and you know you're going to split the check evenly. Well, you know, in the back of your mind, maybe you're economically thinking. That, you know, I'll get something nice because if I get something really cheap, well, I'm paying for everybody else's dinner uh, and I'm not going to get a good deal. So you create these incentives through this this process, this pooling process of, of people consuming a lot more health care than they really need to consume. And for, as you said, doctors and hospitals and others to charge higher prices than they need to charge that they would charge in a free market. Fast forwarding to 2010, 2009, 2010, the summer of the uh of the uh, town hall meetings uh, that uh, the Democrats were uh, being, uh, uh, they were receiving some feedback, let's put it that way, sure. from their constituents during the Obamacare debate and uh, the sort of the rise of the Tea Party. Um, 
and and the Obamacare debate and the passage of Obamacare. What was the problem at that point that the Democrats uh, were trying to solve? What it, well, what was the, the state of our healthcare system at that point? Why did why was it felt that Obamacare was necessary? Yeah. So uh, the way to think about it is this: we have three or we have three big big uh, government programs that subsidize health insurance for people, and then we have a couple of smaller ones. The three biggest are what we describe the exclusion from taxation of employer-sponsored health insurance. That's not technically a government program, but the value, the fiscal value of that tax exclusion is $500 billion a year. So it's almost as, lar- it's almost as large as Medicare as an entitlement, in that, if you think about it that way. So that's a big one. 155 million people get their insurance that way. Then there's Medicare, uh, the health insurance program for the elderly. So everyone over 65 thanks to LBJ and Goldwater blowing himself up in the 1964 election. They all uh, uh, have a government single-payer health care uh, once they turn 65. That's another, I, I think it's like 65, 70 million, something like that. And then there's Medicaid, AID, Medicaid. That's the program for people who, whose incomes are close to zero, under the poverty line, pre-Obamacare. Medicaid and Medicare, both federal programs? So Medicare is fully federal, and Medicaid is a joint program of the federal government and the state governments. Okay. Both passed at the same time in the Great Society legislation of 1965 after Goldwater handed the Democrats supermajorities in Congress. Okay, that makes sense. So you can thank Barry Goldwater for, uh, for all our entitlement problems, actually. <laughs> I'm uh, sure he'd, he'd be uh, <laughs> grateful for the, uh, for the credit. Right. So, uh, uh, so basically the system we have today— uh, so and over this time, by the way, as we've talked about, because all these uh, individuals who are in these existing programs were getting free health care and consuming a lot and, uh, and health care providers could charge whatever prices they wanted to charge, health care became really, really expensive. And so you had this problem that health care in America was much more expensive than it is everywhere else because the government was subsidizing it without any real efforts to control costs. And then at the same time, you had these gaps. So what happens if you don't get health insurance through your employer, your employer doesn't offer it for some reason, and you're not old enough to qualify for Medicare, you're not 65, and you're not poor enough to qualify for Medicaid, right? That's basically the population that it today is uninsured in America. Uh, so pr- prior to Obamacare, there were about 50 million people who were uninsured in America. About 12 million of those were illegal immigrants, so we can take them out. So it's about 38 million who are legal residents of the country who are uh, uninsured. And typically those are individuals who are, again, uh, uh, they're not poor enough to qualify for Medicaid, they're not old enough to qualify for Medicare, and they don't get insurance to their employer, maybe because they're freelancers or something like that. So uh, Obamacare passes, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's heralded by its supporters as the, uh, the be-all and end-all. It's, this is going to solve our healthcare problems. This is going to bend the cost curve down. Uh, and and this is going to be a great thing. Uh, the opponents a big deal, course, as uh, Joe Biden said. Yes, it was a big yes deal. I won't I won't add the uh, the other word. Um, and and the opponents, of course, uh, said the same thing they'd been saying all along: unconstitutional, big government. Uh, and there was a lot of talk about how the the economic assumptions underlying Obamacare were just not remotely reasonable. What what has happened in that period of time between the passage of Obamacare and now? Because obviously. It, it hasn't worked as intended. Yeah, so Obamacare tried to solve this problem of these 38 million people who were uninsured, who were legal residents, uh, through two mechanisms. Uh, one, 
uh, expanding Medicaid, the program that LBJ created in 1965. So for the poorest half of the uninsured population, the idea is that you'd use the Medicaid program and expand it to subsidize coverage for them. And for the other half of the population, people whose incomes were above the poverty line, the other half of the uninsured population, uh, for people whose incomes were above the poverty line, they would be eligible for these new uh, website-based exchanges in which you could buy private insurance. And if you were low income enough, you'd be eligible for a tax credit that would help you uh, defray the cost of insurance that you'd shop for on these exchanges. The problem uh, with the Medicaid program, both the pre-Obamacare one and the post-Obamacare one, is that its design is so terrible that a lot of doctors don't take Medicaid. I wrote a book called How Medicaid Fails the Poor a few years ago. And what that book goes through is the overwhelming evidence in the medical literature that people on Medicaid have no better health outcomes than people with no insurance at all, because a lot of doctors don't take Medicaid. So you have this piece of plastic that says you have health insurance, but because Medicaid pays doctors so little for their time, a lot of doctors don't take it. And so people don't get access to the care they need even though they theoretically have health insurance. So that's the problem with the Medicaid side. The problem with the, uh, the Obamacare exchange side is that uh, Obamacare created this entirely new federal regula- uh, layer of federal regulations that govern what kind of in- health insurance can be bought and sold in the United States for people who need to buy health insurance on their own who don't get it from their employers or the government. So it used to be that was regulated at the state level. States could determine. They could have a very free market, a very open market. They could have a very restricted market. It was up to them. Uh, But what the federal government did is it said, no, uh, you can buy any sort of car you want so long as it's a pickup truck and it's green. That's kind of the analogy for what they did to the insurance market. They basically said all plans have to look pretty much alike. Uh, And, of course, the way they made those plans look was they larded them up with a lot of things that people didn't need, and so plans became super expensive. And so the thing you've seen a lot of people talk about, and this is something, this is work that we initiated at the Manhattan Institute when I was there in uh, 2012, 2013, 2014, is to track how much the premiums have gone up because of these regulations. And it's been a huge, huge problem ever since. So essentially the government, uh, in, in trying to create a national market, actually created a very uh, truncated, they, they didn't allow the market to work in the way that, that, that it would normally work where consumers can pick a product that they would want. Yeah, I mean, for them, it was the, the opportunity of taking over this market was, you know, an effort at social engineering. They wanted everyone to have mental health coverage and everyone to have maternity health. So, like, you know, if you, if you buy uh, Obamacare insurance and you're not a drug addict and you don't need insurance against yourself becoming a drug addict, you still have to pay for that. Now, I don't mean to minimize at all the importance of opioid addiction and other uh, public health problems we have in this country, but if I'm an individual who's trying to find affordable health care, you're not making my health insurance more affordable by forcing me to pay for things I don't need. Now, this is is, uh, where we sit today with uh, all the different options that are on the table about addressing the problems that have been created by Obamacare. It's it's obviously a big tangled mess of of things that are going to have to be addressed, and uh, I'm I'm just gonna I'm gonna set the ball on the tee here and just let you knock it out of the park. Oh, how boy. how do we transcend Obamacare? Well, that that was a that was a beautiful setup because Thank you. Uh, because Thank you. as you know my, uh, the plan that we've published at my new think tank, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, is called Transcending Obamacare, and the reason we chose that word transcending Obamacare is because 
the focus on Obamacare alone takes us away from the bigger problem, which is that for 70 years we haven't had a free market system for the purchase of health insurance and health care. And I, and I worry, and we worried, that for all the talk about repealing and replacing Obamacare, you, you get the impression that people feel like, well, okay, if we repeal Obamacare, we've solved the problem. There's no more socialized medicine in America. There's no more government intervention in health care. No. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the Obamacare only increased the amount of government intervention in the health care system by about 10%. Yeah, it, it's, it's, that's true. It's, you would think about how, how much government intervention – what did the government pay like uh, – the government was responsible for at least fifty percent yeah. of, yeah, of right. healthcare costs prior to Obamacare, and that's three. Tr- you know, the, we we spent three trillion dollars a year in healthcare. So that's a, one and a half trillion dollars of public spending a year before Obamacare. Before Obamacare, per capita expenditures, public expenditures, per capita government expenditures on healthcare in the United States were higher than all but two other countries in the world. The fact is, a lot of these single payer countries that we make fun of because we think they can't manage their affairs. They actually spend less on health care in total and in, in terms of government spending than we do. So we, uh, we're really uh, – our system is really, really messed up. Uh, and, and you know, the reason why I say transcending Obamacare because the, the ambition of the plan is to say we don't just need to replace Obamacare. We also need to reform Medicare and Medicaid. And so the idea behind transcending Obamacare is to say for all of these programs – whether it's uh, Medicaid, whether it's Medicare, whether it's Obamacare, whether it's veterans health care, whatever kind of government health care you're getting, let's liberate patients from that and give patients more autonomy to buy the health insurance and health care that they want to buy. And for people who are truly vulnerable and poor, let's help them afford through direct financial assistance the health care they need. The goal here is to say we can actually achieve what the left always says it wants, universal coverage, with a much smaller program because at the end of the day what we do today is we subsidize health insurance and health care for 90% of Americans. We only really need to be subsidizing health insurance and health care for about a third to a fifth of Americans in order to achieve the results that we want. A lot of people, I think, just don't understand that the reason that health care costs go up so much is that we are actually – Requiring them to go up, right? Just just by the nature of the government intervention, um, th- th- that that leads to the final real question here. The, sort of the cultural question that I have, because uh, if we look at uh, the the 2016 election in the race uh, in the Democratic Party, we saw an avowed socialist uh, running for president and actually performing very well in in attracting a lot of especially support from young people. Uh, we see. Uh, ideas about economics uh, among the, the American people, uh, that uh, a belief in, in the value of a free market system is declining. People are not as confident in the ability of markets to handle this sort of thing. Do you think that, that culturally, uh, at this time, are, are we going to be able to convince people that a market-oriented solution can actually work, that uh, that we are going to maintain that safety net that's needed for the people who are really vulnerable. But uh, is it going to be possible to have people understand that, yes, if you have the ability to go out on the market and, and compare and contrast and, and shop for yourself, you are going to be able to find something per- perhaps better than you have now, perhaps cheaper than you have now? Yeah, you know, you and I know that free markets, capitalism, have lifted more people out of poverty than any other system the world has ever known. But you know what's funny is conservatives never talk about that. We talk all day about the Constitution. I love the Constitution. I understand. 
we talk all day about the inherent value of liberty and freedom. Great ideas. I love liberty and freedom. But we never talk about what liberty and freedom do for people. We never talk about why liberty and freedom are good things. And so a big part of what we're trying to do at our think tank, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, is to, is to, is to do that work, to say our mission you know, at the Manhattan Institute or at any other major conservative think tank, the mission is to expand liberty. Again, I support that. I want more liberty. But the mission at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity is to expand economic opportunity to those who least have it using the tools of individual liberty, free enterprise, technological innovation. So we're prioritizing expanding economic opportunity as our mission and saying that we'll, we believe that liberty and capitalism and free markets are tools to do that. And that's what transcending Obamacare tries to do. It leads with the point of saying we are going to make sure that more people have health insurance, but we're going to do so by using more freedom, not less, because in the rest of the economy, we know that more freedom leads to more access to goods and services at a lower price with higher quality. And we could do the same thing in healthcare. And I think it's a real shame that Republicans have surrendered that higher ground to say, you know what? A lot of Republicans have given up. They've said, we, we believe that the left is right, that the only way to make sure that more people have health insurance is through more government. And therefore, we are going to root for less people having health insurance. That makes no sense to me. And uh, it's a real problem. If, if Republicans are going to replace Obamacare, the only way they're going to do it is to do something along the lines of what uh, President-elect Trump uh, is trying to do. He's been saying all along that he supports universal health insurance, that he wants everyone to have health insurance. And because he says that so strongly, he has more credibility, I think, than a lot of congressional Republicans to advocate for a bill that will advance the interests of those Americans who are today struggling to afford health insurance because of 70 years of federal policy. Speaking with uh, Ovik Roy of uh, Forbes magazine, uh, formerly the Manhattan Institute, now with his own think tank, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. And, of course, you can find uh, the foundation online at uh, freeop.org, F-R-E-O-P-P.org. Uh, and uh, Ovik, it's really been a pleasure having you here at Acton today. Thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Acton, and uh, we wish you well as you build your uh, build your new endeavor at uh, at freeop.org. Thanks a lot. And if you, if uh, your listeners are out there, never are in the Grand Rapids area, you got to come to this studio. It is amazing. <laughs> It's opulent. It's opulent. There's the, like gold coils on the microphones. The opulent Acton Studios where, uh, yes, yes, it's it's just beautiful. And uh, and I appreciate that you acknowledge that because so often people just don't. It's, uh, it's amazing. It's amazing. It really is. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Radio Free Acton. Thanks uh, once again to Vic Roy. He's the opinion editor at Forbes magazine. You can find a lot of his writing over at Forbes.com and also president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Uh, as we talked about, the uh, transcending Obamacare plan that they have is available right there on their homepage at freeop.org, F-R-E-O-P-P dot org. Thanks as well to you for listening. Uh, we appreciate uh, your joining us on the podcast uh, every time we put one out, and we hope that you'll send the links along to people who might be interested in the work that we do here at Acton uh, but haven't heard of us. Uh, send them the link to acton.org, the newly redesigned website of the Acton Institute, and, of course, the Power blog at blog.acton.org. We think it's a great website. We uh, hope you'll find it very easy to navigate, very easy to find the resources that you need to defend liberty, uh, defend free markets and defend the dignity of the human person 
out in uh, out in public debate. And goodness knows there's going to be a lot of public debate going forward in 2017. We'll be here to cover it. And uh, we appreciate you listening here on Radio Free Act. And have a good week, everybody. Music.